welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined as always by my co host, Ryan Henderson. But to mix it up this week, we are doing our monthly Arch Capital episode where we go through any sort of stock we've been looking at in the fund, uh, which for anyone that doesn't know, Ryan and I run a small, uh, concentrated, um, long only hedge fund. And if you want more information on that, we're not going to be talking about any details of the actual fund today. But if you want any more information on that, you can go check the link in the show notes. Uh, But we do these once a month. Ryan, anything to add there? I'll also say we've gotten some reach outs because of the fund. If you're more interested in that, or you want to learn more about it, or you think we should talk more about certain aspects of it, just any curiosity on it, let us know. We're still trying to gauge, I think, what listeners want to hear. Um, and I know some people get curious about that stuff. So these shows are pretty flexible. We can do a lot of different stuff with the with the fun shows. So uh, reach out, let us know, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter. Yep. And again, the link will be in the show notes for the fund website. A lot of them that we're doing are going to be stock analysis shows. And today, the episode title is why we own Dropbox. Now, this is not the sexiest name, like maybe Nintendo or Spotify or Match Group, literally. Um, but we're going to go through why we think this is a, uh, a good investment, why we've held it for quite a long time, and why we think it is underappreciated by the market. And I would say, after the recent quarterly report performance, one of our and especially because the stock, uh, we'll get to the valuation later, but I'd say it's it's really up on our rankings. Um, it's rising up on our rankings because of its recent performance. But let's get through the first question here. We have no advertiser today. So for anyone that hasn't listened to these, we basically just co-interview each other where I'll ask a question, we'll start a discussion topic, and then we'll flip back and forth until we finish the episode. We got about seven or eight of them for this one. So the first one, what does Dropbox actually offer its customers, Ryan? What are the pros and cons of the platform and how has it changed since launching, I believe in 2011 with its, no, you're going to correct me there with its file storage service. 2007. Wow. Earlier than I thought. Yeah. Um, So I guess prefacing this, this show, I've tweeted about Dropbox a number of times and there are a lot of common responses. um, And anytime I talk about them, that we're going to try to touch on throughout the episode. One of them being uh, it's kind of lack of innovation. Um, that's that's something that I've heard a number of people mention that it hasn't changed a whole lot. If you want to see the visual of how the platform has changed, just I guess for context, I don't. I think it has changed, and I'll show you why. Um, we're sharing our screen right now for anyone that watches the videos or. I've got two screenshots of what the platform looked like in 2007 and what it looks like today. 
You can also check those out at the news or on the newsletter. Just so up chit chat money Substack, you'll find it. But Dropbox is today, it's a file sharing and content collaboration platform for both individuals as well as teams. Um, and they're really trying to be Dropbox is they're trying to be the dashboard or kind of the workspace for the digital workspace for all of their users' digital needs to kind of be aggregated into one place. So um, whether that is jumping into a Zoom meeting, messaging on Slack, editing a file together, editing a Word document together, editing a Google document together, editing PowerPoint, uh, watching a video, editing something on Adobe, you can do that basically all in one place. That That's, that's the goal of Dropbox is to kind of be the aggregator. Um, However, that is not what Dropbox was in its early days. Early days Dropbox, and I've listened to a number of interviews now, kind of dating back to the old Dropbox, it was focused solely on helping individuals sync or upload their files to the cloud. That includes photos was a big one, videos, documents, presentations. Uh, Drew Houston, the co-founder and CEO today, his original use case was he was saving his own code on Dropbox. So, um, and and they weren't the first to market. Apparently, it was a really crowded market when Dropbox was trying to launch. Um, he he mentioned that I think there was like twenty different. There there was like a uh, what's it called TechCrunch article that said like twenty best cloud storage uh platforms to use and that was like a article in like 2007 so they were not first to market however drew houston basically used tried a number of these solutions because he wanted to use one and found that they all kind of sucked and he thought he could do it better they also did some of that affiliate marketing that uh a lot of kind of early digital companies had success with paypal kind of pioneered it i think um and so that really helped. They had sort of this program that said, basically, you know, if you invite a friend, we'll give you two gigabytes of extra storage space. So that was the goal at the start. However, when some of the well-capitalized competitors began to undercut Dropbox on cost, that's when Dropbox's focused focus began to shift. Um, in an interview, Drew Houston directly called this out. There was a point where Google launched this. I think it was like photo photo storage uh, application where within Google Photos, you could upload as many photos as you wanted for free. And that was pretty much Dropbox's entire business model being given away for free by the platform that probably has one of the most, uh, maybe the most uh, eyeballs. Uh, uh, let's say sum it up a clear distribution advantage. Yeah. Um, and so this was kind of, you know, that's obviously a very concerning risk if you're running Dropbox. And at that time, he basically, they were going into that, like prior to Google launching that, they had a whole bunch of different initiatives they were trying out. They were acquiring companies left and right, a whole bunch of disparate businesses, basically. Um, and it was kind of this come to Jesus moment when he said, okay, you know what, it's time to rein in our focus. And he actually had an interview or he had a conversation with an employee at SpaceX where 
he was like, you know, it's really cool what you guys are doing. You guys are really like literally trying to get to Mars. Um, nice how callback that this finally relates to our defense and aerospace theme. Just a slight connection for the month. Yeah. And he, and he asked, uh, he said, you know, how do you guys like collaborate? How do you communicate? Cause obviously you guys must be working like, you know, uh, must be pretty efficient as a business. And the, the person, whoever he was talking to said basically a lot of emails and a lot of files. And so that was apparently, and he, maybe he'd been working on this in general, but the Genesis moment where he realized it's not enough just to be a storage place. If you can really get teams and groups to collaborate in this place, it becomes habitual and it's a lot harder to switch or uh, churn off of that. And so that was when they really started to begin that migration towards helping groups work better together. I, I've got a picture showing kind of what the platform looks like today. There's a lot of different functions or features that you can use if you're a Dropbox uh, user um, that are that are fairly unique. Obviously, Google has done its best to copy a lot of these projects, copy a lot of Dropbox's platform, same with OneDrive, um, and it's cheaper. So it, they this is not to downgrade Google Drive, OneDrive, any in any way, because we use Google Drive, we're using it right now. Um, and they've probably done well. But, yeah, our, our business runs on Google Drive. But plenty of businesses run on Dropbox and there are some perks. So I guess just in terms of differentiation, um, Dropbox is a little different in some ways. So for starters, and this is kind of a big one, at least uh, in some of the people I talk to, um, they're file type agnostic. So if, if you're if you're working in Google Drive, I and maybe it's evolved over the years. I haven't done this as much anymore because I had a bad experience with it initially. But it's hard to import a Word document. You have to like convert it to a Google Doc, um, or it can be difficult to like just embed a, a different kind of file type, a Word, uh, OneDrive file type, whether that's an Excel sheet or um, a PowerPoint as opposed to a Google presentation. It's hard to import that and just edit immediately. With Dropbox, it does not matter whether you're coming from a Google Drive product, a OneDrive product, a Dropbox native solution. So they have their own solutions as well. I think it's called Pages. Um, you can instantly start editing and communicating and collaborating on these different files with your team members. Additionally, there are um, some nuances to Dropbox's platform that that I think are pretty unique. So Dropbox has templates for legal documents. I know a lot of law firms actually work with, they use Dropbox for a lot of work. Um, they, they got that their form swift acquisition. That's a great way to kind of get up and running if you're trying to use any of those. Um, they have a native signature solution within the platform. So any documents that you're kind of exchanging between team members, you don't have to use DocuSign to go out of the platform. You can just boom, sign through that document, whatever you need, because Dropbox acquired HelloSign, they integrated the tech, um, and now it's kind of this native solution. Last one I'll mention is there are a lot of different sharing capabilities. Some of these have kind of been copied by Google Drive and OneDrive, but you can add password protections to certain files. You can have your sharing 
time expire for certain files. So you don't have to come back in and remove someone's uh, email. You can basically say, you know, they get access for two weeks, that kind of thing. Um, and then you get also kind of superior file analytics. You can see where people spent time, how much time they were looking at the document, that kind of thing. Basically that all came from the Docsend acquisition, which is really popular in kind of the venture capital realm. Um, there are, and none of these are, in my opinion, like, one singular differentiator that makes the platform better. But added together, it, it for one, it consistently enhances the value for the users, which if you're a Dropbox user, that's what you're hoping for. And it makes kind of some of those habits, it, it increases the chances of retaining that user by consistently adding that value. So um, we've, we've, you've seen Dropbox uh, add paying users every year for the last, I want to say eight, maybe probably d- decade. Um, and with, I think no down quarters, right? Or am I wrong? Quarter over quarter growth, maybe one flat. We should have checked that before. I do not. That's not year over year though. There was definitely, every year has grown. I'm pretty sure it's been every single quarter. We've seen sequential growth. There was one where a lot of that was inorganic um, mm, from so organic. Okay. Yeah. But um yeah, they, I mean, they've consistently grown. Today, in terms of pricing, it, it really varies whether you are uh, how much you need, how big your team is, kind of how much storage space you need. Um, but for a standard small team in the United States, it costs $15 per month per user. Um, today, Dropbox touts more than 700,000 team customers. And I believe, I want to say 18 million total paying users. So the platform is big. I think people underestimate how many people are willing to pay for this. Uh, and prices have gone up over time um, for or the average revenue that the, the users are paying to Dropbox have gone up over time. So I, w- I would say anyone listening or thinking about the stock for this year for tracking the financials, you should, uh, they're absorbing a probably, I think their most significant price hike in the last 10 years uh, for their one of their most popular plans. And that's why their average revenue per paying user is going up. Ryan will probably show that chart later. Or maybe I will. They, um, so yeah, watch that. that. That's a very important thing going on at the moment. Okay. I think that hopefully lays the groundwork for what Dropbox is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's talk more about its performance over the years. Why has Dropbox been able to grow users and raise prices despite the obvious competition? And then this one's kind of a simple question, but is Dropbox a good business? 
Yeah. So thank you, Ryan. These questions both relate to each other, I think, because I would define a good software business as one that can profitably grow, which means growing their revenue while having a positive operating margin or cash flow margin, which Dropbox does, and retaining their users while also raising prices. It all kind of interconnects. For context, as Ryan mentioned before, but I want to say it again, Dropbox competitors are large and wieldy platforms. The main ones include OneDrive from Microsoft, Google Drive, or Google Workspace from Google, as anyone can guess, and iCloud from Apple. These companies all have a billion. I think Microsoft has a billion um, users on their operating system. If not, it's quite significant and it is an advantage for them around the globe that offer a very similar base product as Dropbox for free, which is the file storage up to a certain gigabit level. They all have the same, it might be a different level of gigabytes but they all have the same basic feature where they say, okay, if you're free, everyone knows this for Google Drive. I think that's probably the most popular free one. You get, you can sign up with an email, you get 15 gigabits of free storage. And then after that, you either have to delete stuff or kind of go through some clear clearinghouse and, or pay for the upgrade. So why has Dropbox been able to properly grow since hitting the public markets when in theory, all four of these and other competitors like maybe Box, who I guess is more enterprise, and some of these other, you know, non-big tech competitors have the same thing. We we really asked ourselves the same question as our instinct was to think like every other investor who we talked to who just throws aside the stock because quote it is a commodity with huge competitors that will crush them. I bet a large chunk of you have thought that exact same thing during this episode when I was previewing some of our charts on Twitter. Someone. And this is before I even wrote this down for the episode, asked that exact question. So I think it comes down to a few main reasons why Dropbox succeeds. First, Dropbox went viral out of the gate and created this category, or as Ryan mentioned, maybe not created, but popularized this category. It has over 700 million registered users that got comfortable with its service that it can easily upsell once they hit a file storage limit or want to start a small business. I think... That's sort of important, but the second point, and I think more importantly, is Dropbox's focus much more on workplace software than these three other companies. Again, Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft. In fact, I don't think the Dropbox competitors even sniff the top 10 in strategic priorities at Alphabet, Apple, or Microsoft. I mean, right now, they're all focused on AI. Apple's focused on this VR headset. Alphabet and Microsoft are focused on the cloud. Uh, they don't want to get disrupted by... Alphabet doesn't want to get disrupted by Bing, who also Microsoft is investing heavily in. Ryan, anything to add there? Yeah, and is it, you know, I think people say, say that a lot, which is, you know, why hasn't having the big competitors been able to disrupt kind of the smaller player? They don't care. And it's not necessarily even... Drew Houston was asked this in an interview. And he says, listen, Google has lots of good engineers, probably better than we have. However, the best engineers are not recruited to the 11th most important, most important project. You're, you're yeah. getting kind of the bottom tier engineers at those companies. So even though they might have some of the top tier, when it really isn't a priority, the results aren't going to be there that you're not going to get as much resources. I mean, you might have access to more resources, but you're not going to have as good of engineering talent and commitment and focus from your staff. And especially the the upper management there, you're going to have less direction. You can see that what Google Drive and OneDrive and iCloud have stagnated over the years. Now, I think this is what allowed them to improve their service to make it better than the competitors 
even though they have a much smaller workforce. Ryan said that, uh, you know, summarize that. And then I think taking it a step further, Dropbox, Dropbox has worked to expand greatly out of the traditional file, file storage stuff offerings with the products Ryan mentioned above. To summarize, the important ones would be, you know, something like the security features, the password keys, the e-signatures, the new one with the form Swift acquisition, which has a bunch of form templates, which is very important for certain businesses. And then also the, you know, document analytics. This is something I think we're going to be personally watching to expand over time as Dropbox adds on even more features, either internally or from acquisitions, because when they want to offer these individuals or families or small businesses, they, you know, right now they have basically the the core workplace uh, collaboration, file storage, file collaboration features, but they add on e-signatures, security features, document analytics, and then hopefully five years from now, they have those three things, but five or six more things that separates themselves out from Google Drive. Now, I think third, and another thing Ryan talked about is Dropbox is platform agnostic. Plenty of people or small businesses share files across different devices and software power by more than just one company. I would say almost every small business is going to have exposure to Apple, Microsoft, and Google enterprise software services or operating systems simultaneously. I can tell Right, Ryan, we're one, we have a team of three, and we are all mixed up with Apple, Microsoft, and Google for uh, separate operating systems. Each of these companies have Dropbox competitors that don't want to talk to each other. For example, the classic one is uploading Microsoft Word and editing that within a Google Doc. It's very wieldy, it's very complicated. If you have Dropbox, you can work pretty much simultaneously with these with a lot less friction, and it works a lot more nicely together. Now, why are they able to raise prices? Um, we think it's because, and it's important for us when we talk about a company that we own, if it's going to be a company that is going to be in our, you know, quote unquote, I never know how to define it. The compounder category, the concentrated, you know, never sell category, um, or, you know, theoretical never sell category, which Dropbox is in for us. It needs to have a competitive advantage. We think Dropbox has one key competitive advantage, and that is switching costs. Changing the backbone of your workplace software is a pain, and there's little incentive for someone to spend six or even more, I'm just using eggs as an example here, ingratiating, boring hours switching to a competing service just because Dropbox raised your subscription fee by $25 a year. Yeah. And think about it like this. Yes, it wouldn't actually be that difficult to switch it would be boring it would suck to spend to wake up and spend a whole day just basically porting all this stuff over but we're a good example there's alternatives to google drive and i've never once switched there are better bank accounts than the one i have and i just have never really wanted to go through the pain of switching i think it's very similar to that honestly because it's not necessarily that you're lacking certain functionality if you move over, but you have to retrain, relearn, kind of you have sort of an order system for where your files are, you know where everything is. It's just this really painful process to switch. It's much easier to just pay a little more. Yep. And what we like about this note as well is that this should only expand over time because if you're a person or a business and you use Dropbox and then you use it for another year, you're going to have more files, you're going to have more 
uh, habitual, you know, usage of the product and you're going to increase the storage, which, you know, you might have to pay more for each and every year. So we think that that moat will only steadily widen over time as that, you know, they got to spend on R and D, they got to update the service. They got to add more features and stuff. And then also a small benefit, which is not as big as the switching costs, but I think it's one that can also expand over time that the big platforms are not really investing it at all. I mean, they could, like Ryan mentioned, if they put a thousand engineers on it, but they're not going to, um, for especially for a small business is Dropbox can bundle things like document analytics, e-signatures to increase its average revenue per user. And if you think about it, if you're some small businesses really need e-signatures, depending on what type of business you are, or you know, it could be a medium business, but small to medium is Dropbox's bread and butter. Some people really need e-signatures. Some people really need document analytics. Some people really need these forms. If you are one of those companies, it's much more likely now that they can bundle these services that you're going to choose Dropbox over someone else. If I'm sure there's people listening to this because they're always this with Dropbox whenever we talk about it, doubting the company. Um, I just want to have some evidence here that it's actually worked, uh, that their you know key performance indicators, their KPIs have been growing over time. So I'm going to share the screen. I'll divide, uh, describe it here. They're very, very simple charts. First one, is their Q1, which we're using Q1 just because it is the latest quarter uh, paying users since 2018. Look at Q1 2018, we're just a little bit below 12 million and pretty darn, I mean, if we put a a linear extrapolate, linear uh, whatever, something on there, I'm forgetting the word, um, the R squared would be pretty staying strong. It's just been linear growth over time for their paying subscribers. And if we look at Q1 2023, we're just under 18 million. So we've gone from under 12 million to just under 18 million with a very steady linear growth since 2018. And if we look at average revenue per paying user, which excludes their free users, it's been not as linear because one, they'll have you know price increases aren't every quarter or every year. And also foreign exchange can hurt this as well. It's gone, again, grown every year since 2018 to 2023. I think that just shows that, yes, things can change, and yes, we'll talk about the risks, but the evidence is there that I think we are correct on our assumptions on on this business model. All right, unless you have anything else, Ryan, on this, who, let's talk about management. Who runs this company? Let me, All right. Let me yeah, add yes, one I'm, yes, I'm, okay. And you mentioned the linear growth. I'll share my screen real quick as well and zoom in here. You did the basically year over year. Here's the quarter over quarter. Uh, if I can zoom in. This is basically the quarterly growth in paying users over since Q1 2017. And it has just been really, really, really steady. They have a pretty simple formula for how to grow. And the other part that's, I think, important to call out here is it's you're not selling to a CIO like a typical typical software business. You're not like hoping that he evaluates the software budget and says, "Yeah, you know what? We can squeeze you in. We're going to start uh, trying you out and, and implementing you across the organization." They're not it's, selling to large enterprises most vast majority of the time. Yeah. Well, in in some cases, it's groups within large enterprises where what you have is a couple of people within a big company decided to start something at Dropbox and it kind of spreads within the business, that is a good recipe for growth because it's a lot easier to just simply add seats when it's a part of a lot of these large organizations 
Um, and every time a new team member gets added to that group, you're able to just tack on an additional new seat. So as those organizations grow, you too can kind of just grow the paying user base. So I, I like that. And I, I like that. I think that potentially bodes a little better or does a little better in a recessionary environment than software where you're trying to sell into the CIO or the CTO. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Next topic, Ryan, who runs the company? How has Drew Houston evolved as a leader who, again, who runs the company? Uh, what's management's capital allocation philosophy? Yeah, you, you mentioned Drew Houston, and he really is kind of the main event, if you want to call him that. There is one other person I'll probably call out. Um, Tim Regan is the CFO. He stepped in in 2020 after the previous CFO stepped down, and the, he was the chief accounting officer at Dropbox for the four years prior to that. So he's been with the company for a while. Um, so far, so good. I mean, throughout his time, he's already helped institute uh, a big price increase, staff reductions, and a continuation of their large buyback program. So it's a little... I, I don't think it's enough time to assess his performance yet, but so far so good is what I'd say. But yeah, Drew Houston is the most important person here. Co-founder, really kind of a bright guy. Um, and the reason I say he's the most important is Houston owns 90 million shares and 75% of the voting power. So even though the other CF, you know, the CFO and the they, I think they really only have five executives like in total. And one of those is the chief legal counsel and one's like a chief people officer. Um, he, I mean, he dictates the decisions. So if the CFO performance isn't great and he recognizes that it's, it's up to Drew Houston basically, because he has all the voting power, voting power to choose a new CFO. So um, he really does run this business. Um, and honestly, I, I like him. I think I know that's not like that helpful in terms of investment context, but he's obviously a bright individual. So he attended MIT. He dropped out after launching a fairly successful SAT prep business. Then he got into Y Combinator and co-founded Dropbox in his early 20s, mid-20s, I guess. And he was, you know, he was writing the code at the start. It isn't one of those kind of mercenary CEOs who steps in and doesn't have an understanding for the tech behind the business. Um, and kind of after, he, he also kind of has this self-deprecating side, I think, where it's he, he realizes who he is. He realizes Dropbox's role. He doesn't think the business is more than it is. Maybe at one point he did prior to the Google kind of coming, attacking his moat or attacking his castle. He, he maybe was trying to be he wanted Dropbox to be more than it is today, but I, I think he's very rational and he's pretty candid when he sees issues and he's, he's someone that's continuously trying to improve. Um, I've listened to a lot of interviews with him, like I mentioned earlier, and it's been interesting to see kind of how he's evolved. Apparently a couple of years ago, he, uh, I don't know if it was like one of those CEO coaches or whatever, but he asked for, there was probably consultants or something that came in 
And he was, he wanted to be analyzed essentially. You know, what am I good at? What am I bad at? And they gave him a whole bunch of compliments. And then they said, one big problem is that you're very conflict avoidant and you don't like to have to have convert like hard conversations. And he said, that's been something he's really strived to improve on since because it, and he really, I, I encourage everyone to go listen to his interview with uh, Harry Stebbins on 20 VC, because you get this sense that he, he kind of transitioned to this person who it doesn't benefit anyone to have an organization with more employees than it needs. If, if you're not helpful, if you're not useful, it's better that you go find somewhere else where you're more valued. That's, that was really his focus. And he even, uh, he even says this in a, in a quote, he says, people don't usually want to join companies where the people there are less talented than them. So talent density is really important. That's kind of a, uh, a Reed Hastings concept. Um, and in the last three years, you've really kind of seen him demonstrate that focus with his actions. Uh, the He's done two layoffs now that were pretty sizable. In 2020, he reduced the workforce, I want to say by 11%. And then last month, they announced another workforce reduction of 16%. And on both on both occasions, without kind of explicitly stating it, it was basically a we don't, we no longer need this large of a staff. So um I don't know if it's because he's on the meta board and he saw the impact that it can have uh when Facebook or, or Meta instituted some of these staff reductions, or maybe it's because he's seen that Dropbox is increasingly easier and easier to run. But Houston seems very focused on increasing the per share cash flow. Um, he's obviously the largest shareholder, so has clear incentives aligned with, with us minority shareholders. I like him. And uh, I, I mean, it's as far as I can tell, he, he looks, uh, he has one goal in mind, which is to really drive per share free cash flow. Yeah, no big red flags. I would note that they've done another layoff as well. So there have been three, um, but most recent one was 16%. Really? I, I must have missed that. But I've got a, there's a chart here um, that shows kind of just the, f- the free cash flow that's occurred and when the layoffs happen. And you can see it usually takes a quarter or two, but there's the step change typically. In the free cash flow, obviously you're reducing operating expenses, but that you have to have the kind of the one-time severance charges. So um, he seems very hell-bent on reaching a billion dollars in free cash flow. You read through the conference calls and it's like, basically they've said, you know, uh, the macro economy has worsened a little bit and it's going to, it's been, it looks like it might get harder to reach that billion dollars in free cash flow, but we're going to do it. And we might just have to take bigger steps in order to do it. Yeah. Foreign exchange, they they say they've used that as a cop-out as well. But again, that's something they can't really control. Um, but yeah, nothing else to add there. Okay. Let's talk about the acquisitions side of things because that is kind of a pillar of their strategy. I should have, I, I forgot to mention this, but they've instituted a huge buyback program. That is how they return capital to shareholders. The You'll hit that Houston, evaluation though, right? I mean, you get details yeah. on that. Yeah. Houston has basically said, um, there's three areas we deploy. If we see investment within the organization where we can generate an attractive return, that's the first place. 
then we'll satisfy share buybacks, make sure we're buying back. And then if there's acquis- if we still have excess cash and we think there's an acquisition that would be accretive to the business, we'll buy those as well. Do you want to talk about, I guess, what, ac- what acquisitions they've made, um, what, how it's maybe benefited the business, and then what do you think, I guess, of, of the acquisition strategy overall? Yeah. So Dropbox has stated numerous times it plans to acquire software companies that it can bundle into its workplace platform. It has really backed that up through his actions as well, which I'll go through. And you should expect more of these in the future. Essentially, it wants horizontal software functions that it can upsell to existing Dropbox customers. So when I say horizontal, that means not for a specific industry. It's a function that can apply to a lot of different small businesses or individuals. This can also work, uh, you know, vice versa with customers of uh, the software program it acquires, it can you know say to those customers, "Hey, we'll bundle in the actual Dropbox functionality, and then it'll be cheaper, but you know they'll earn more revenue from them." Management also mentioned it believes it sees more opportunities to acquire software products on the cheap because we're in a current software bear market. So I think it might even become more important to the thesis going forward and making sure that they're you know rational, smart with their capital allocation decisions. Since 2018, these are the major acquisitions. Um, FormSwift, December 2022 for $95 million. DocSend, March 2021 for $165 million. And HelloSign in February 2019 for $235 million. So three big ones over the last four to five years. Um, They're not constantly doing these, but you should maybe expect one per year to pop up. That's kind of been their cadence. There've also been a lot of smaller acquisitions that are more of a aqua hire to uh, accelerate development on the products they're already building. So if you combine these three acquisitions, Dropbox has spent around, let's say rounded up just below $500 million to bring digital form software, form swift document analytics and tracking docs and, and e-signatures hello sign to its platform. Plus there was already existing revenue there from these businesses. Were these acquisitions worth it? I think we can discuss that. I'm maybe curious to your opinion, Ryan, but I think they were generally. I mean, they're not home runs. They didn't turn into the you know giant returns on invested capital here. But I believe the there is a this is a smart strategy to widen Dropbox competitive position and value proposition versus someone like Google Drive or iCloud. If you are a small business, I've used this example already that uses a lot of digital forms. You are going to choose choose the Dropbox Form Swift bundle for your storage needs, especially if you already use one or the other. Um, on the AI point, it looks like I think we should just note this that Dropbox is going to be accelerating its development of AI tools that they've already been working on. Uh, he just sent, or excuse me, Houston, I have to say who it is, just sent a letter to employees announcing a 500-person layoff. Uh, in the letter, I have a key quote from there that will be in the newsletter, but I won't read the whole thing on this episode. He first says that our business is profitable, but growth is slowing. And he says that the AI era of computing has finally arrived and that they need to transition resources from, you know, to that, but they don't want to, and some of the people, and some of the people that are working there uh, aren't going to, you know, that's not, that's not their specialty. So they're going to, you know, lay off 500 people and then they want to invest more of those resources into engineers, tools and stuff like that. They're actually going to help with these AI stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that can mean we could see an AI acquisition, maybe an AI partnership. I doubt that they are going to do something with Google or Microsoft because those are their key competitors, but I could see them easily, you know, 
partnering with another startup to add on a large language model functionality to the Dropbox platform. I don't think they're going to build their own because they're probably not big enough to do that. Um, I think that could be helpful though. It's definitely, you know, there, there's a lot of organization that needs to be going on, right? That's their whole point. And if AI can help with that, you know, maybe that can improve the value proposition of the service. I, the one concern here though, and this is more of a note to the management team is I don't want to get too bold up and overpay for a startup during a bubble. So Ryan, before we get into it, curious your thoughts on the acquisition strategy and their recent uh, transition of resources to more AI development. Yeah, that's maybe one of my few concerns is the acquisitions have been helpful and additive to the platform for existing users or whoever ends up signing up uh, or adding those on to their subscription. However, they've been poorly timed. Um, so they bought Hello Sign, I believe, right at the heart of COVID. Maybe it helped a lot of customers during that time period, but yeah, they've I mean, said without explicitly saying it, volume at HelloSign has declined quickly. Yeah, I mean, they could have gotten cheaper now, but the I think that would have opened them up more. You know, their their product suite would be less robust from 2019 to now if they didn't have that. And I I I I think it was definitely worth it. But yeah, it's a good point. I mean, they would that company would be struggling right now. Yeah. And I mean, they have DocuSign as like an integration partner that it maybe it isn't a native solution, but it's easy to just kind of, it's not that much more friction. I think basically if you ask them whether or not they would have made that acquisition, they probably either would have required themselves to pay less or said no would be my bet. But I could be wrong. I think they're uh, kind I'm of discreet about it. I'm going to disagree with you, but. You know, I could be wrong as well. I guess the the only concern is that they've stopped talking about it a whole lot, which sometimes with these acquisitions, it's, you know, you can't really assess the return on them when they stop talking about them. Um, Docsend, they kind of did that at peak bubble, especially in VC world. And because they're such a big VC uh, customer demographic for Docsend, when you're trying to raise money, a lot of companies will use Docsend. That's been a huge headwind uh, for their business because there's been just a lot of lot less rounds raised. So both those were kind of poorly timed. That's my concern. You know, you talked about the AI and them making an acquisition. An analyst asked a question about that: Are you going to make an AI acquisition? I wish they wouldn't have asked that, but because uh, I hope they don't start to feel pressure to do so. They've timed too poorly. I would hate for them to do it again. Is kind of my concern. Form Swift, I, I kind of like that. It seems like. Having those templates and having a, a good place to start, it, it kind of reminds me of Wix's um, like website templates where it gives you a base layer and then you can kind of edit from there. So for certain use cases, FormSwift could be really helpful, I think, in, in being a part of Dropbox. But overall, no, they've been small enough that it doesn't concern me too much. And they do seem to prioritize the the uh, buyback first. So it's not too concerning. Yeah, they haven't destroyed the business doing it. All right, Ryan, let's get to the meat of the bone here. Why do we think the stock is cheap? I will go through some of the numbers verbally, but it's always hard to follow this. So I'm going to try to explain it as best I can. If you're really, really interested in the numbers and 
I do too poor, too poor of a job explaining it. Feel free to check out our newsletter. Um, there'll be a visual in there that has our little or my little uh, evaluation work. But for the purposes of of kind of estimating what Dropbox can earn, I tried to be conservative. I know every single analyst and probably the history of the world says my estimates are conservative, but I. Th- even these numbers, I think they can, honestly, if I had to bet, it would probably be higher than some of the stuff I put in, but I want to know what kind of return we'd get if these were the numbers that came out. So here's some of the assumptions I put in. 4% annual paying user growth. This one's kind of hard to know what it's going to shake out at. Um, it's obviously somewhat dependent on the overall economy. If there's a lot of layoffs at organizations, that's going to potentially reduce seats for for Dropbox. Um, If it's back to kind of big tech growth, maybe we'll see uh, more higher kind of paying user growth, but it's been at 9% over the last six years. So this is a significant reduction um, in kind of the go forward growth rate compared to the past. The second one I put in here is 2% annual growth in uh, average revenue per user there there will be a big spike this year because of those price increases that they instituted as Brett mentioned but they've historically increased their average revenue per paying user at 3 to 4%. So this is kind of a fraction of that but the reason I do that is because they had the big the big spike this year so moving forward they're probably not going to double down and do another price increase and it'll probably be a little slower than you will see kind of leading up to this year. So 2% annual Revenue per user growth, 4% user growth annually. Third assumption, 35% free cash flow margins in 2025 and beyond. They've guided for 34% this year, and the layoffs won't even show up completely until next year. So it feels very achievable. They have very clearly said, we're going to do what it takes to get to a billion dollars in free cash flow. Um, it seems like 35% free cash flow margins is a f- safe assumption. And then the last one here is reducing share count by 6 to 7%. I will go ahead and call this out right now. Whenever I tweet anything about Dropbox, instantly the comments come back and they, t- they say, what about stock-based compensation? That is an important factor to value in here, but it's just that. It's a factor and you can easily, it's, it's a number in the equation. So I assume that they will spend 90% of free cash flow on buybacks from here on out. That over the last two years, they've spent like, I think 150% of free cash flow because they had a bunch of debt that they took on and, and did a levered buyback. So, but I think on a go forward basis, 90% is probably safe to assume. If they do that, they will. Well, let me talk stock-based compensations first, sorry. And I know this is kind of windy. Hopefully everyone's still following me. I expect that stock-based compensation will increase by about 3% a year over the next five years. The reason I assume 3% is because they just just had the staff layoffs. So that's going to reduce the operating expenses, reduce the stock that they pay out to their employees. Um, However, historically that's grown over time. And there's also a little less pressure, I think, in terms of the competition for talent right now, 
you probably don't have to pay as much in stock-based compensation to, to attract people given just sort of where the economy's at. So I think 3% growth in stock-based compensation is fair and safe to assume. If you take the difference between buybacks and dollar volume of stock issued, so stock-based compensation, you get to basically 6 to 7% share count reduction annually in total if the market cap stays where it's at. So if the market cap changes, obviously how much they're able to buy back, it will fluctuate, but that's based on today's current market cap. And then the last thing I assume is just a multiple of 10 times uh, in the later years. So kind of valuing it on that basis. If these end up being accurate, obviously they won't be exactly accurate, but I think it's possible that they're over that. We'd end with about a 14% five-year rate of return, annual rate of return. Um, We usually aim for 15%, but this feels like a much more, a much safer 14%, much more predictable than some of the 15% IRRs we try to get. Was that too much numbers? uh, I was tracking it, but I was reading it. But I think anyone that's confused on that part, we won't harp on too many numbers for the rest of the episode. And if you want to learn, you know, read through all the the assumptions, go subscribe to the newsletter. The link will be wherever the show notes are or where you're listening. I do think the one thing I'll call it is I think you are very conservative on average revenue per paying user. I think they can increase that by a lot, but who knows? Maybe they don't flex that for a while. Yeah. But besides that, I think those are not like, I think that one's too conservative. Yeah. Potentially. I think the only part of my rationale for that is they, they, raise prices at a time when everyone seems to be contracting their software budgets. So, and they even mentioned like there was maybe a little more churn than they were expecting with the price increases or some people kind of hesitating to, to increase their subscription price. It might leave them a little reluctant to try a big, a big jump like that again. So that's kind of why I factor in that 2%. Sure. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. We wrote a research piece outlining our thesis on the stock more than a year ago. Do you still agree with that analysis? Do you think anything's changed since? All right. Well, I'm not going to read all these full quotes, but I'm going to kind of summarize them and then we can maybe agree or disagree. This will be fairly quick, but I just want to look at what we were thinking a year ago and whether anything has materially changed from now until then. If you want to read the full quotes, we'll have a link in the newsletter to the write-up and the quotes will be in there. So the first one was that the unit economics of the business, you have 80% gross margins, um, 20% spent on marketing, bring it down to 60%, 10% on GNA, bring it down to 50%. And then we kind of had an assumption that 50% would either be spent on R&D or would follow the bottom line to get uh, returned to shareholders or spent on acquisitions. Do you think that that has materially changed, uh, Ryan, or do you kind of see that as the same uh, thing here where they decided to spend about 35% of that 50%, uh, excuse me, 35% of revenue on R&D. So the vast majority of that 50% that is left over. Um, do you agree or disagree? Do you kind of see the business in the same spot uh, as it was now? Le- you know, Very small amounts of marketing spend. Yeah, I think it's fairly similar. Maybe they reduce some of the they may have reduced some of the employees associated with the general administrative and marketing side of things, but there's the possibility that more of that goes to R&D as they've laid out that they want to kind of invest in some of those AI initiatives. 
the AI supercycle. Yep, I agree with that as well. The unit economics have not changed. The other one is, we've discussed this already, but the classic argument about Dropbox being nothing special. It's, big tech is giving away an equivalent product. Um, but in fact, ARPU paying users have grown in the face of Google Drive, OneDrive, Apple iCloud, and that they have sur- uh, survived the moat test so far. Do you agree that or disagree that that is still the case today. Yes. Every yep. quarter that they add more paying users and don't pay an egregious amount to do so um, uh, confirms kind of that assumption for me. Yep. I agree as well. Every quarter that <laughs> the moat, you know, attack doesn't work, uh, their moat strengthens, I think. And I think every quarter confirms that we're right, which is great because the stock price hasn't moved. Um, all right. Ooh, let's see. The next one is basically a quote around how our goal for a stock that we own is for 15% compounded returns. Has anything changed today to maybe, you know, improve or uh, do you agree or disagree that we can still get 15% returns? Because personally, I think the opportunity is even higher because earlier we were kind of pricing in and saying we could get 15% returns if we get multiple expansion. But I think we can get 15% returns now without multiple expansion because the business has improved so much and the stock price hasn't moved. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we can get upwards of 15%. I put in that those kind of safe assumptions and we got to 14. So I think there's the, certainly the possibility that it's higher than that. Um, the, the other thing is we're recording this when it's trading at about $22 a share. Just prior to earnings, it traded down to like 18 or $19 a share. Obvi- this this is going to be an obvious statement, but the returns are much higher at those levels, in my opinion. Um, and it seems to have done that now a couple of times. So people will sour on this stock periodically. I, I think it gives good entry points. I mean, hey, once they realize it's an AI stock, this thing's going <laughs> to just go to the moon. No, that's not a part of our investment thesis at all. At all. Okay, last one, and this was going over the risks, which kind of probably leads into the last section as well. Uh, I light, laid out, uh, or I guess we, but I was writing the piece, uh, the biggest risk for forward returns as really increasing capital expenditures because of, you know, uh, I guess now you could say like AI costs so much or just because commodity prices are up. Um, and then I also said a second risk was inflation and employee compensation. And then the third one was how they would do during an economic downturn because they have never, as a more mature company, experienced a true economic downturn. COVID doesn't really count and actually probably helped them a little bit. Agree or disagree that those are your three uh, three risks you're watching or has one of those kind of gone away? I think the customer attention is something I'm always trying to monitor. Um, now, it churn in and of itself will not show you necessarily the customer retention because they have like, like Spotify, they have a lot of uh, free trial periods, stuff like that to kind of attract users, but it's something really, you got to pay more attention. It's if they're paying more and more, like if you're seeing operating expenses go up and you're seeing de minimis growth in the paying users, then that's kind of more the cause for concern for me. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think one word for me that has gone down as a concern is inflation and employee compensation because when we wrote that, that was kind of near near to the peak of the software bubble. And I think now that market has gotten a lot more rational. Employee compensation of that is kind of normalized. And what they do is kind of pay up for people and then don't have a really large uh, employee base compared to everyone else. So I think that one's gone away. But as we move to our major risks that we're watching, I think I'll just kick it off with talking about that recession stuff and why I think it's a risk I'm watching, but I'm not too concerned. So yeah, the major one I'm watching is that, you know, how this company goes through a major recession, especially as small businesses turn down, as freelancers might turn down um, economically, how they get impacted. Will they, you know, uh, will churn really, really rise. Um, and again, like I mentioned, they have not gone through an extended economic downturn as a mature company. However, I do believe that file storage is not the first software product you drop when finances are tight, um, right? Because you you need it for your everyday tasks. You need it for... Especially for an organization with multiple yeah, members. And it's not going to be, let's say you're a small business that might cost you around a few hundred bucks a month if you have a, a very small business. Or oh, maybe for all of them. Place, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah, not per, but for everyone. If you have 15 people on using Dropbox, maybe, and you have some other features, it might cost a thousand bucks a month. But if you're using some of these upsell features, you have a 15 person business, it's going to be like the, the amount of time or that would be wasted and money that would be lost by switching off of it and canceling your Dropbox would be much more than a thousand dollars a month if you're a 20 person team that's paying for a lot of these features. Um, my second risk I'm here thinking here is. I don't know. Maybe I was overplaying this because I did get nervous about the company <laughs> earlier this year. I did tell Ryan about that. Uh, is the AI capabilities at Microsoft and Google leapfrogging, um, increasing the value proposition for users? I think it's a big time to be determined on this one, especially when Dropbox is investing in AI and especially when they really are one layer above Google Docs and Microsoft Word, where you could have AI capabilities within Google Docs, where you have a large language model helping you out, but you're still going to store that file within Dropbox. What are your thoughts, Brian? And then we'll move to maybe what we're thinking about on when we would sell our shares. Yeah, it might hurt in terms of new new customer growth, just that they're, that Google and Microsoft's AI is so much better that or their whatever, whatever they can integrate into their like existing G suite and uh, OneDrive products that, that sort of AI help that might make them kind of a more, just a, just a better solution for new customers. But I don't see any reason why that would encourage existing uh, customers to churn off. That is the biggest risk for me. I mean, just keeping an eye on customer attention, making sure they grow paying subscribers and grow grow them profitably. That's really the primary thing we're looking at. And that's going to determine basically the the results of this investment. Other things I, I'm looking you, at. You never know, Ryan. It's going to trade down to three times cash flow eventually at this point. If, if that's the case, I think uh, the buyback will be quite helpful. Um, yeah, that's true. Other things that I'm monitoring, though, I want to make sure I'm right about Drew Houston. He he is selling shares on a regular basis. Um, I don't read into that too much, but he also gets paid fairly well. It's just gonna um, 
making sure that he does care about shareholders as much as I kind of think. Um, that's just something I continuously kind of watch. And I, I think you get a good sense of how he thinks when you listen to a lot of the interviews that he's done. Um, second one, the, uh, just watching stock-based compensation. If, if they, uh, they used to grow stock-based compensation by like 9% a year. So if anything like that continues and it's enough to like offset the buyback so much so that the IRR is significantly reversed that, you know, that could be bad because they're really fixated on hitting this billion dollars in free cash flow figure, but they don't say how much in free cash flow per share because and you, and you can do the easiest way we've seen people cheat on their cash flow targets is by uh, increasing their their stock based compensation. Yep, yeah, I agree with you there. And I mean, it's it's a fair concern that people call out. I think right now, even if you factor it in, it, it, you still get a good return. But um, if it continues to worsen, especially during a period when there's layoffs, um, that would be cause for concern for me. All right, let's wrap things up. The last question we have here is why we would sell our shares. I'm going to outline what I'm thinking because Ryan and I do have, you know, we have written down kind of when we would sell or we've talked and we've talked about it, but it's something that, you know, can be updated because the business changes. So I think this will probably be our update that we're kind of doing publicly as the podcast here. So from my perspective, given that this is a low growth, predictable story, lots of buybacks helping us at a low earnings multiple, I would want to sell Dropbox fairly quickly and I'd have high conviction in selling if the valuation got out of hand, which again, would be a good thing because the stock would go up. I think 20 times free cash flow gets hit and the forward returns look pretty bleak here. Um, to be fair, that's very far away from here because with today's, uh, or excuse me, this year's earnings guidance of about $820 million in free cash flow, that is roughly a $16.4 billion market cap. Current market cap is $7.9 billion, so more than a double from here. And I would also look to be sell if they made an expensive acquisition for some AI startup. I'm talking like $500 million or something like that, or like Ryan mentioned, the paying users in ARPU deteriorate. What I like about this though, is it's a very, very simple story. We'll know when we're right. We'll know what we can sell. Curious though, Ryan, if you have any other thoughts on that as we wrap things up. No, I, I, it's not in the never sell bucket. And to be clear, this is not like one of the widest moats we've ever looked at. Uh, I do think a lot of their customers use it because it's habitual and it's easy to use and it's a good product, but this is not a Google-like moat. This is not an Amazon-like moat. There is something that could come along and disrupt them over time. Um, so yeah, if the valuation got to 20 times cash flow, the, the returns don't look that good. Um, so valuation, get it out of hand, I'd sell. And then if we really saw something start to eat away at their paying users, um, or if we saw declines in average revenue per paying user, uh, to kind of trying trying to retain those customers. It, it's not necessarily an instant sell, but it, it's certainly something to watch. Yeah, and that one's more harder. Or that one's, excuse me, harder. <laughs> As I can't have grammar there. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening, watching, or however you listen to the podcast. You can do so on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube, which we'll have, as we've mentioned, the share screen that you can interact with the episode. I would say, again, reiterate, subscribe to the newsletter. They're free additional show notes for each episode, not just the Arch Capital ones. You get it every week in your inbox on Tuesdays. 
think it's a fantastic resource to help get you up to speed on the company. If you like the show, give us a review on Spotify or Apple. Easiest way to uh, you know, support our episode. Or if you follow us on Twitter, just link it there. That's a great way to share it as well. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We're general partners at Arch Capital, which we talked about during this episode. The link to more information to that is in the show notes. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.